All right, so we've been um, studying and paying attention through the letter of Paul to the Ephesians during this ordinary time. And I guess we had to pick just kind of one headline up to now, maybe. It would be something like this, that Paul's been telling us how it is that we're to grow up into Christ and how what it is that God's doing about that, how what Christ is doing about that, what the Holy Spirit is doing about that, what these various graces that God has given us to grow up into Christ. And he comes now in the last part of this section that's, uh, to something that might be uh, surprising, if not a bit counterintuitive these days, and that is church. I don't think that it was on the minds of very many people these days that church is a place that one might go to find spiritual growth and uh, edification. I mean, we live in a day, obviously, where church is kind of losing its cachet and its vibe more and more in culture as a place where somebody who's really spiritual would go. Uh, these days, if you're truly spiritual, uh, you might be inclined to actually find yourself away from church. But Paul wants us to hear something different. And he wants us to understand that, that Christian growth, our formation into Christ-likeness, is not an isolated self-help program. And that church, community, uh, being a part of something doesn't, destroys one, doesn't destroy one's individuality, but rather helps create it. I mean, a really healthy person, a spiritually healthy person, is able to bring that health to a community. And a really spiritually healthy community is able to uh, recognize and appreciate and help form a person's individuality. Thirdly, I think Paul wants us to know by a community that, Paul, that God's not remote, that God is concretely here and now. And one of the things about when you hear this phrase, the body of Christ, one of the things that for these ancient Christian participants and thinkers, it was a way of reminding themselves that because Christ is the head and that we're the body, that when the body is gathered, the head is here and he's moving, he's working, he's concretely, he's not often God lands somewhere, whatever, doing whatever a God might do, that he's actually concretely present with his people. So evidently, at least in the eyes of Paul, there's a lot more going on at church that meets the eye, a lot more than that which gets praised or condemned, like worship was really good this morning, or I didn't really get much out of that teaching, or it sure was a bummer trying to find a parking place, or whatever. I mean, the normal things that get praised or condemned about church, as you're going to see here in a moment, in the mind of at least Paul, is not actually what's going on. I mean, I don't, I mean I'm serious. Some days I, as a church planting pastor, sometimes wonder, in a smartphone world, Am I trying to pitch rotary telephones? I mean, smartphones are so sexy and so, like, spiritual. You know, they, they sort of say, I'm spiritual but not religious. And church can seem like, you know, or like getting people to go back to a rotary phone. Paul says, this is kind of a basic summary of our, of our paragraph this morning, Paul says that what's actually going on in church is things like this. Jesus is becoming our peace and making peace. 
that he's making us into one new humanity, breaking down walls of division and hostility, reconciling us to God and one another, putting to death hostilities. That's what he says is actually going on as God is forming this new humanity. And that we get in on this as recipients of God's action. Now, this, of course, fits perfectly with what we've been learning about things like grace and how it is that faith works with grace, that we're always the recipients of the action. So we do things like we receive access to him and his people. We allow ourselves or we cooperate with being joined or being built into this temple. And this alerts us to something that is really core and foundational important, foundationally important for all of us in, as we consider our own spiritual formation into Christ-likeness, and it's this. That primarily speaking, we don't develop our identities by what we do. Primarily speaking, our identity is developed by what is done to us that we're the recipients of this action. And so we're made by what's done for us and what's done to us. Now, that may just sound sort of philosophical or religious to you or like somebody who's trying, trying to be doctrinally uh, you know, precise or something. Actually not the case though, especially if you've ever experienced being an outsider. If you've ever truly been an outsider to a group or something that's going on, and you had no power to do anything about it, what could you do except for be the recipient of someone else's action? So this is not about theological precision. This is not about trying to be, you know, perfectly Pauline. This is actually about a group of people who for thousands of years, as far as anybody's conscious memory could know, were outsiders to what God was doing. I mean, look at your passage in your bulletin. Look at the phrases that are used to tell us about the Gentile or the outsider condition and how they had no power to act on it or fix it. They were separated from Christ. Our paragraph says that they were excluded from citizenship in Israel, that they were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. Without hope, that's the keynote. without hope, they were powerless to do anything about this and they were without God in the world. But now, Paul says, look at that in your passage, but now, and now he begins to, to describe the Gentile or outsider experience once they start to become the recipients of this action, where he says, in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And I think what this passage invites us to hear this morning is this that God doesn't keep his distance like royalty or stars. Like have you ever been at a hotel or something and just maybe somehow you catch a glimpse and you're made aware that some rock star just went out the back door, you know, through, down through a basement where they keep food for the kitchen or something. They make their way out this back door because, you know, those sorts of elite people you know, can't, can't be troubled by us, you know, the normal folk. And Paul wants us to know that God's not like that. And that he does not insist on any complicated rituals or protocols. And all of you in this room who with me love liturgy need to hear what I just said again. He does not insist 
on any complicated protocols or rituals. This must never cause you to believe that this separates us from God. This must never cause you to believe that he's somewhere else until we invite him to come. For he, through the blood of Christ, think about this, the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ now makes himself always everywhere present to his people. He is the head of which we are the body. These things function in beautiful, important ways, but never in ways that are meant to separate. Never in ways that are meant to give us an imagination that God is somehow distant and that we call on him, we beckon him to somehow come. But he is always already there. And these things are tools, ancient, important, incredible tools that are meant to actually remind us that that's the case. They remind us of this story in which what I just said came true. Rather, verse 18 tells us that through Jesus, we both, meaning Jews and Gentiles, have access to the Father by the one Spirit. And again, I know we kind of hear these Pauline things as like this were a class on theology or something, but this is actually an unspeakable privilege that we're meant to make real in our lives. We have access to God. Now, again, I guess you can't understand it if you've never not have access to something that you really care about. But for these people, this was a big deal, as the text goes on to say, that Jesus destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. The slain was also a slayer. That in some mysterious, amazing way, he who was slain in that, in that being slain became a slayer to walls and social customs and religious customs that kept people apart. Now, ironically, when Paul's writing this, the wall around the temple of Jerusalem still stood. It stood like, have you ever been driving through a little town somewhere and you pass an old broken down restaurant and it still has a sign on it and maybe still says open but it's obvious you know nothing's happened there or nothing's been there for 50 or 60 years so the wall sort of stood there like a sign on an old restaurant but no one was paying attention to it anymore its physicality didn't matter because Jews were eating with Gentiles and Gentiles with Samaritans maybe walking back and forth between the wall to have dinner at each other's homes so while the wall stood there, it certainly wasn't in use by the new followers of Jesus, for they were becoming one. Why? Because as the text goes on to say, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, Jesus allowed this to happen. Now, you've heard me say before, and I want to stop here and say it again so you can get the importance of this. Um, when you ask the question, why did Jesus die? How many times have you heard me say it has more to do with merely the forgiveness of sins? Well, this is one of the passages that tells me this. I didn't make that up. Jesus made the two one 
by setting aside in his flesh, that is to say, in his broken body and shed blood, he set aside the commands and regulations that wouldn't allow Jews and Gentiles to be together. So when he says that he's setting aside the law, he's not talking about the moral law. Obviously, we just read the Sermon on the Mount and we understand that Jesus isn't dissing the moral law. What Jesus is setting aside is the ceremonial law that made social relationships between Jews and Gentiles impossible. So somehow in his flesh, he breaks all that down. Why? Look at your passage. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. So Paul, writing sometime in the first century, was not anticipating 21st century sociology when he said things like, among the followers of Jesus, there's no Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. He's not anticipating the civil war. He's simply stating this is what's true and really real. And it's one of the questions to the answer of why did Jesus die? Jesus died in part to make God's one eternal plan to have one body, one people of this new humanity who would be his cooperative friends. That's all he ever wanted out of Adam and Eve. Come work with me in what I'm doing. Just come be my cooperative friends. Well, then, you know, the story, the fall happens, the whole Bible as we know it unfolds, and now you get down to the, you know, the beginning of the end, so to speak, and Jesus is dying, and it raises the question, why is he dying? Well, one of the reasons he's dying is, or as Paul said in, in Galatians, is that in Christ, through his death, there would be neither Jew nor Gentile, not male or female, that you would all be one in Jesus Christ. So Paul's not stupid. I mean, he probably could have, you know, successfully taken a university course in anthropology or in sociology. He's not stupid. He knows that facts of human differentiation remain. And maybe should even be, pro not maybe, should be prized. Prized that there are female genders. And prized that there are male genders. Prized that there's every skin color in the world every ethnic group in the world. These things don't go away. What goes away is inequality. That's abolished. And it gets replaced by humble unity. So maybe a quick summary here of what Paul's been saying goes something like this. The temple, after thousands of years, is no longer the focus of the manifest presence of God. Rather, this new humanity this new thing that God's creating, this is now the focus of the manifest presence of God. And it's built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, he says, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. That is the thing, that is to say, the, the, the measuring stone that makes the rest of it make sense. And so when Paul, that's why Paul says, in him then, the whole building is being joined together and rising to become a holy temple. And then we are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his presence. <clears throat> so let me say this. Amen. So let me say this um, as we bring this in for a landing. I know what you all say behind my back. I hear everything. There's just like nothing I don't hear. Not much anyway. 
And I know my reputation. People think I'm a nice guy. Maybe some of you think that I'm sort of particularly gifted, you know, with a particular temperament. You know, maybe I'm even guilty of being a little too much of a nice guy. That I'm pretty steadfastly unwilling to hurt or use others. Even when it might be pragmatically smart to do so. But I just want to tell you that's not true. At least that's not my sense of myself. My sense of myself is I'm trying to become the kind of person who could live into that story I just told you. This isn't about me or my temperament or whatever. It's more what I told you before. We acquire our identities not by what we do, but by what is done for us and to us. And so when I honestly consider just as a follower of Jesus, not a pastor or a Bible teacher, but just a follower of Jesus, when I actually try to consider that Jesus allowed his body to be broken and his blood to be shed, that you and I would not be separated? I'm just trying to live into that new human race. I'm just trying to cooperate with God to be the kind of human person that he intended me to be. And in this body that Jesus is creating, of which he's the head, its characterization is not alienation, but reconciliation. It's not division, but unity. It's not hostility, but peace. So it's not so much that I'm the nicest guy in the world. It's that I wake up in the morning asking myself, who do I think I am? That I would dare to build or reinforce walls that Jesus, through his broken body and shed blood, tore down. Who do I think I am? Well, he cut me off on the freeway. That should have been my job. And so we have all these rationales that say, I can create and reinforce differences that Jesus hung on the cross to break. To create one new humanity through which God could express himself on the earth. Who would be his cooperative friends. Who would do all they could do to live creative lives of goodness. Who would do so through the power of the Holy Spirit and his gifts and character transformation, his authority and power that he sends us with. And that we would do all this for the sake of others. That the people who are presently outsiders could find their way in. That's one of the big answers to why did Jesus die. It's not just about us and our sins, as I've said a hundred times. Finally, let me put it this way. Every week... I stand in front of or behind this table. How dare I stand anywhere near this table, which if it does anything, it invites everyone. And it beckons everyone. It welcomes and feeds everyone who wants to feed on Christ. How dare I stand in front of or behind this table without trying to become the kind of person who could really withstand there as Jesus' co-host, welcoming everybody to this table. So when I'm done with a passage like this, I think again, and it's the thought I want to leave with you, how dare I build 
or reinforce walls that Jesus, through his broken body and shed blood, tore down. Amen.